Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. A quarter of a century ago, the art, please don't call it a science, of economic forecasting was just starting to become fashionable. In addition to the semi-state-sponsored bodies like the OECD in Paris, or the National Institute in Britain, every large bank felt it needed a team of economists. Nobody considered them a profit centre. Rather, they were there to engage with clients and make plausible guesses before the salesmen were let loose on the customers. So it was quite brave of Roger Bootle to leave HSBC and set up on his own, hoping to make a living. The result was capital economics. Not only did it make him a living, it now in my view, bestrides the economic analysis and forecasting world like a colossus. Uh. They are everywhere. (laughs) The business was valued at £95 million when a majority stake was sold in 2018. This week alone, it has produced research covering the UK budget, emerging Asia, economic sentiment indicators, whatever they are, rounding it all off with an analysis of why 99% mortgages will make the housing crisis worse. So, welcome, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. We've never had a colossus before, (laughs) Joe, so it's it's a first for us. Uh, (laughs) Particularly one who bestrides things. We choose our our colossi with care. (laughs) So uh, let's, let's start with a little history. Why do you think that you could make a living from the dismal science as I thought J.K. Galbraith called economics, although it predates him by quite a margin. So why, Roger? Well, first of all, you know, I was by no means the first into this particular field. I, as part of my job, gone to America quite a lot, as we used to. And over there, there were quite a few people who'd set up on their own and managed to make a living. There were a few in the UK. Uh, and I always thought that if it was done properly, then there was a market for it. Because for a start, although I don't want to by any means badmouth HSBC, I think it's a pretty good bank in many ways, but my experience there brought me closely into touch with the conflicts of interest that existed in all these big banks. And I began to believe very strongly that research needed to be independent. So the research into economics doesn't strike me as being an obvious source of (laughs) conflicts of interest. You'd be amazed. I originally worked for a a stockbroker called Greenwells, which was a really big noise in the gilts market and the sterling markets more generally, and it was bought by HSBC. And I was in the habit, as one would be unthinkingly, sending notes out to our client base. And in those days, we could have a major impact on the gilts market. And I changed my view at one stage about what was happening to interest rates. I can't remember if it was going up or down, but anyway, I made a major change of view, sent this note out. And shortly afterwards, the head of trading at James Capel on the same floor, the same ownership as us, came steaming over. I thought he was going to hit me, actually. And he said, <laughs> don't you ever do that again. If you're putting out a major piece like this, you've got to show it to us first. I was flabbergasted. But there were umpteen other cases as well. One of my great... I suppose regrets, was in 1992, I'd come to the conclusion that we were going to be forced out of the ERM. I'd been reading a lot 
about the gold standard and when we were forced off in 1931. And not many people in the city did. You know, they followed their models and the data stream series went back to what it was, you know, 1975, if you were lucky. No one read about the 30s. I was reading about the 30s. And uh, I was convinced we were going to leave. So I wrote a piece. It was going to be headlined something like interest rates to rise to 15% before falling back to five or something like that. I had to have this piece reviewed by my boss before it sent out, sent out. And he said, you can't send that out. I said, why not? He said, well, we've got a conducting some operation with the Bank of England to raise some money for the reserves. You can't be putting that out in the middle of all this. So I thought, gosh, this is, this is mm-hmm. ghastly. What on earth do I do? Now, I was due to go on holiday, actually, a fortnight's holiday. And I thought, I can't just put it out and publish it and be damned and then disappear for two weeks. It'll calm down. I'll go on holiday. And then when I come back, I'll have the major battle. I came back to this country on September the 16th the day we were forced out the ERM, I turned on the radio in those days, there were no mobile phones or anything, turned on the radio to hear on Radio 4 my old friend Peter Day saying, we're out! Very oh, few people know that, you know. Uh, I was absolutely spot your on. Name I would have been even greater than <laughs> it already is today. <laughs> I, re- I remember it extremely well. It almost cost me my job oh, gosh. at the Telegraph that I was saying our position in the ERM was untenable and was not going to last. And I remember vividly there was a great clash and uh, there were leaders in the Telegraph saying, we've got to stick with this. And Mm. sort of more or less for a contrary view, see City comment. And I genuinely did think it was going to cost me my job. So both of us were uh, in the middle of that drama all those years ago. I got no credit for it, you see, apart from internally. Well, it never appeared. (laughs) Never appeared, no. Neil's column appeared. Uh, I hate to break in on this mutual (laughs) self-congratulation session that we seem to to have entered into. (laughs) But Roger, I wanted to ask you something about inflation and monetarism, which is something which, if one goes back to the 70s, and 80s was seen as a tool of economic management Mm. and then Mrs Thatcher had a go and it didn't seem to be such a good idea but more recently we've seen a kind of a resurgence of interest in monetarism Mm. partly because of what happened in 2020 when there was a surge in the money supply because of the Covid measures and then inflation hey presto emerged a year or so later. Perhaps you could take us back through those debates and, and give us your view on what you make of this resurgence of interest and whether it actually leads anywhere or not well i'm afraid i'm going to give you very much an economist's answer which is basically (laughs) yes and no um i I think i think this is one of these questions where numbers have to be interpreted they don't speak at you directly and of course the whole appeal of monetarism was originally you just looked at the money supply numbers and they told you what was going to happen yeah and i never believed that was uh, the case and i remember in the dark days, 79-81, the beginning of the Thatcher government, when they jacked up interest rates to 17% in an effort to control the money supply, the money supply carried on racing away. Yeah. But pretty soon inflation did come down because the economy was absolutely clobbered and unemployment went up. Yeah. But why did the money supply keep going up? I remember having this argument with lots of monetarists at the time. I said, well, it's going up quite simply because, you, because you've clobbered the economy so much. British industry has got no dosh. They had to go to the banks to borrow. So the money supply was actually going up as a direct result of the disinflationary pressure that the high interest rates were inflicting. So it was then. It can be an extremely misleading guide. And then, of course, you had the different definitions of money and the way that financial flows, they changed the way they flowed through the financial system at different times. And so famously, Mrs. Thatcher at one point with, um, who was that governor? Richardson, that's right. He was hauled in for a real basting by her because they'd 
withdrawn the corset, this artificial means of constraining the money supply, and it sort of shot up in about 6% but in a month. Mm. It had no real significance. All that had happened was money that had been diverted outside the corset had now come back into the orthodox financial flows. So you have to be very, very careful. Now, coming to more recent times, I call myself an anti-monetarist, but that doesn't mean to say that you can forget about it. And I do think the stance of the Bank of England and some other central banks has been absolutely extraordinary. They have a thing called the Monetary Policy Committee, and they didn't mention the money supply once. I mean, did they ever look at it? I mean, I think that the evidence is no. (laughs) I think that there should be a presumption that all these central banks should always look at the money supply, not saying target it. And if there's a major movement one way or the other, they should at least ask themselves the question, why should this not have the result that you find in the textbooks? And there might be a jolly good reason. Now, the really significant thing, however, and this stops me from being a monetarist in the current phase, the really significant thing, I think, about the burst of monetary growth in, was it 20, was it was associated with COVID. And it wasn't only a relaxation of monetary policy that occurred then. It was also a massive relaxation of fiscal policy. And this was the key difference from the period after the GFC, 2007, 8, 9, when the money supply also expanded thanks to quantitative easing, but there was no fiscal expansion. In fact, it was followed by fiscal contraction. In this case, what happened was you got these amazing dollops of money being dished out by the Chancellor at the same time the Bank of England was buying stock up. So the result was large amounts of money landed up in people's bank accounts, ordinary people's bank Mm. accounts as well as companies. This was completely different as to what had happened after the global financial crisis when the buying of securities for money, so-called quantitative easing, was really a transaction kept within the financial sector. Joe Public didn't notice any big expansion in his savings. Mm. So I, I come to the end of this saying, yes, Let's look at it. Let's always keep it in mind. Let's ask questions. But for goodness sake, let's not follow it blindly because when we were following it blindly before, it led us up the garden path. I think your most famous book was The Death of Inflation. And, of course, we've now discovered that inflation wasn't dead. It was merely sleeping. What was it that moved you so much to write something which was against the huge consensus that inflation was terrible thing but there's not much we could do about it and it was going to be with us in an unpleasant form for years and years well again I think as always with me I approach this by looking at the history and most modern economists that I came across didn't know much history certainly not further back than the second world war and I was lucky enough to have a supervisor Mm. at university who knew his history and always impressed on me how important it had been. And as soon as I got familiar with the history of inflation, it became pretty obvious that the burst of inflation we'd had over the previous 20-odd years was really very unusual. As a student of monetary policy, I'd um, always been struck by the way that we'd been through these different monetary policy regimes, different circumstances and different policy regimes. And in each one, the consensus in the markets and among the commentators was always that this was somehow God-given. It was, you know, bound to continue. Even though if you looked at the history books, you'd know that we'd been through a succession of these. So that was the first thing. I had this sense that the period we were living through was unusual. And the thing that really did it for me was I was an early visitor to China. I went on an economist's tour of China for a month in the early 80s. And I learned an awful lot from that. It became obvious to me, anyway, what was going on and the scale of the competitive force that was going to be brought to bear in the West. So I I was early on to the idea that we were going to see a, a tsunami of price cuts and cost underminings throughout the West. 
And there were a series of other micro-supply-side changes also, the diminution in the power of the trade unions, privatisation, a whole series of changes which I thought were going to make it easier to keep inflation under control. Now, even in those circumstances, of course, you can have mega inflation. I mean, Turkey and Venezuela have, even though you know we're in a globalised economy. But that, co- that supply-side change coincided with, I thought, a very marked change in the attitude of policymakers, and it was going to stick, that change. And those two combined, I thought, were going to give us a long period of low inflation. Death of inflation, I came in for a lot of stick for that title. I think it was a good title, though. It was more or less right for a quarter of a century. I mean, not many economists <laughs> can claim that. The new edition will just say <laughs> the, the long sleep of inflation. I suppose so. It doesn't exactly have that ring about no, it, does it? Yeah, <laughs> no. But can we ask you for a second to calibrate your peering into the future that you did in the 80s? Where have you look around the world economy now? What are the kind of things that you see as long-term influences on what might be coming or is already down the track or coming down the track? Well, I'm pretty positive about what AI can do for us. Right. I'm a bit nuanced on that. The book I wrote about it was neither, as it were, massively positive nor massively uh, pessimistic either. But I think that is potentially a, a major positive development, as long as we don't squash it. And one of my worries has been that we would regulate its benefits away somehow or other. That's, I think, the only really big positive I can see. I'm pretty negative on China, I have to say for all sorts of reasons, for supply-side reasons, for political reasons. I don't think it's going to grow very fast at all. In fact, one of the big calls we made at Capital Economics was effectively to say we're pretty much at peak China in the sense of the Chinese economy as a share of the American economy. At a time when everyone had thought, right, this is inevitably going to be the Chinese century, it's going to end up dominating the world. We made a call that, no, that's not going to happen, actually. It's never going to exceed the American economy. And it's now shrinking relative to the American economy. Yes, that's absolutely right. Relative to. Not absolute absolute terms, no. It's got a major demographic um, challenge in China, as several other countries have as well. When I was first onto the China thing in the early 80s, how big it was going to be. Mm. Most people in the West hadn't been there and hadn't really thought about it very much. It was pretty much an irrelevance, actually, if you were thinking about the world economy. Yes. Uh, but that totally. ought to have put people onto the idea that this potentially could be very big. I mean, if you start off doing something appallingly badly, which the Chinese did, yeah. you know, under Chairman Mao, the great leap forward, so-called, an enormous leap backward. And if you start off that way, you haven't got to do much right to get some spectacular growth rates. And of course, they did some years, 14, 15, 16 percent. But as you go on, you use all those easy things up and you get closer to the technological frontier set by the United States. In some cases, they're arguably at it or beyond it. Then things start to get more difficult. There's still a problem about the allocation of capital. And then more recently, under President Xi, you run into political factors where he's clearly placed the tight control of the Communist Party above the growth rate of the economy. Where would you see best and worst prospects now? I'm pretty positive about India, which, of course, is way behind China in terms of GDP per head, has been pretty inefficient in large parts of the economy and has learnt the error of its ways. It's improved economic policy making no end. And the demographics are very good. The combination of English language and the rule of law and all the rest of it is an extra benefit there in the background. So I'm very positive about India. The big unknown is, I think, Africa, because there are some good judges in the hedge fund world and elsewhere who do see the seeds in some parts of Africa of Mm. something like the East Asian miracle. And that potentially could be really big news, of course. Well, of course, the classic mistake we make is to say, ah, Africa. 
and you look at Africa on the map, and you know, you can swallow Europe into it I about know. half well, a no, dozen it's, times. It's squished down by the whatever Mercator projection. Yes. So yeah. when you actually stretch so, it out, yeah, it's, it's absolutely enormous. enormous. Yes. <laughs> there are other particular countries there that you have your eye on. Nigeria's probably got a pretty bright future. Demographics aren't destiny, but of course it's very strong demographics in Nigeria, incredibly strong. I'm very negative about South Africa, which is the country mm. that I know best in Africa. I've been there many times. I don't think that looks, looks good at all, actually. Real governance problems. I mean, some smaller countries have done, or less significant countries, have done pretty well. Botswana has done amazingly well. Across Africa as a whole, there's a major governance problem. And if that could be sorted, then I think probably the future is extremely bright. We recently had uh, a show about Bill Gross. Bill Gross, the American bond investor, is famous, I think, in Britain for just about saying one thing, which was that the UK gilt market was sitting on a bed of nitroglycerine yes. in 2010. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> he was wrong. He was sitting on a bed of nitroglycerine. He was closer to the <laughs> yes, nitroglycerine right, than the yes. bond market. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've obviously moved on and we've, we've mm. increased the size, the outstanding amount of gilts by some mm. measure since then. Mm. What's your view now of where we are? Well, again, I'm afraid I have a really frustrating, uh, frustrating even to me, sort of yes and no answer this, because, you know, again, looking at the... Oh, looking at these economists, yeah, I you know. know. Why was this salesman at James um, Cable ever so cross? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, looking at the history, uh, we've been here before a number of times. Yeah. Over 250% of GDP after the Second and World War. And after the Napoleonic Wars. A bit less than that, but approaching that, approaching oh. 250% of GDP after the Napoleonic Wars. And again, after the First World War, not quite as high as that, but nearly. So we've been here before, and we've gradually worked ourselves down on that number. And I think it can happen again. However, that doesn't mean to say we can just forget about it. We can just go willy-nilly. The interesting thing, and the dangerous thing, I think, is what's happening in America massive spending under Biden. I think we're going to see Trump spending a fair bit more in a number of areas, but also significant tax cuts, not really caring about the American deficit. So the American debt ratio will go up, I think, quite a lot more. It'll be interesting to see what Labour does uh, as and when they get power in this country. I'm actually comparatively optimistic. I think that Rachel Reeves is well aware of the difficulties and dangers. This is the sense in which I think the trust experiment was a good thing. <laughs> Historically, the role of trust yeah. quoting <laughs> was to make it clear to the Labour Party <laughs> how you limits. had to. Yes, there yeah. are limits. How you have to retain the confidence of the financial markets. Yes, it was uncomfortable at the time, but I think it may prove worthwhile. What role do you think that the semi-state economics bodies now fulfil? I mean, we take a great deal of note of what the IMF says and what the OECD says mm. and what the National Institute says, but they seem to me to be completely redundant nowadays and they have a reputation which mm. is far ahead of anything they deserve mm. and they're prospering at our, at our expense. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, for most of us working in the city, we've long held that view. It's been, I think, people, dare I say it, um, among the commentariat, and especially the BBC, who have elevated their status. They seem not to have twigged the idea that the IMF is an appalling forecaster. It's very strange being a forecaster, because when I was earning my living as one, as it were, 
I had to go through the whole business, obviously, of coming out with point forecasts for a whole load of things I didn't have much of a clue about. That's what the market seemed to want. But where I thought we added value, when we added value, wasn't about that. It was about trying to see turning points. And in order to do that, I think you needed a fairly deep understanding of the issues, the country, but the particular issues that you were talking about, which brings me back to history. One of the banes of my life as an economist has been econometrics. Now, I'm not one. I mean, I've done all the courses when I was a student and I gave it up at an early age. Uh, I really fundamentally don't believe in it because what it seems to me to be saying is that there's some sort of underlying structure in the economy revealed in the numbers you see in the past period. You've just got to find that structure and then apply what you find to the future. The future's going to be like the past. What I think happens in the world is that everything's going through an historical process. Things are always changing, ideas, structures, everything. And in order to get some notion about the future, you have to understand the historical process. And this brings me to that point about um, turning points. As I mentioned earlier on in relation to inflation, I approached that issue through the lens of history. And I think I came to an understanding, made a bold forecast, on the basis of thinking about a turning point. You don't get that from econometrics. History is more important than any underlying structure, if such a thing there be. Well, I think they're both important. I mean, one of the reasons I I didn't study history in the end at university was I got frustrated by the lack of a theoretical structure. And I found that in economics very appealing and then the more I got into economics the more I found the lack of history frustrating so I tried yeah. my best to combine them in an amateur way certainly where I approached problems that's what I did at one stage some years ago I did dream of the idea that in my retirement one of the things I wanted to do was to try and sponsor and set up and run a course in economics done the way I would want it to be done that's to say a section or something on economic history also on non-economic history, just history, I'd do some accounting. I would have economic philosophy and the history of economic thought. This, I think, one can learn so much from. Why did the consensus view change? Why did people believe what they believed in the past? It's a really good way of being critical of the consensus now. Anyway, I've more or less given up on that idea. That's a shame. (laughs) Sounds like it's an idea whose time has come. (laughs) Come on, Bootle. Well, uh, yes, I'm not entirely... I'm embroiled in something else (laughs) at the moment. But um, this shirking. uh, I I might come back to it. I've had a few academic institutions who would be interested who are the really essential writers on economic history who you would recommend? I think the best technical economic historian is a chap who sadly died recently, Nick Crafts. Really very, very good, but not the sort of person I think that the general reader would want or find very appealing. I'm a great admirer of Schumpeter. Yeah. Bits of Keynes, actually. My favourite Keynes is How to Pay for the War. Yes. Which I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. You mentioned Galbraith earlier. I mean, he wasn't an economic historian as such, although I do think his book on the Great Crash, yeah, 1929, is absolutely wonderful. He, yeah. he has a wonderful story about it when it first came out. He was flying somewhere yes, and he went to the airport bookshop <laughs> and said, do you have a copy of the Great Crash? And they said, sir, yeah. we don't think we should sell a book with that title here. <laughs> yes. Well, I remember reading that as when I was a young man and thinking, gosh, if this is what economists concern themselves with, and then thinking, right like that, I want to be an economist. Unfortunately, of course, neither of those presumptions were valid. But um, I, I loved the way he, he wrote, didn't agree with him on many things. Uh, but the fact that you can have a, a chapter in that book, which is entitled In Goldman Sachs We Trust. I love that. I mean, it's absolutely. 
absolutely wonderful. (laughs) I think that uh, we have uh, extracted our pound of flesh from you. (laughs) (laughs) That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app, as that will help new listeners find us.